Well, again, good morning. Glad to be back with y'all. One slight correction there, Adam, is that I'm at Furman University, not Wofford. So I apologize to any paladins out there on Adam's behalf. And uh, I've been with y'all several times. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to. Uh, It's always a a privilege and and great fun to be here. It is my first time being here since y'all became a particularized church. So uh, congratulations on that. And I'm going to read to you in just a moment from Psalm 69, uh, which is a hefty and long passage uh, that we're going to need to prepare for. So I'm going to start you out with a story. A few years ago, I heard a story on the radio, NPR's This American Life, to be specific. Cute little story about this reporter who had two little kids, elementary school age kids, one in kindergarten, one in first grade, something like that. And uh, he noticed that at his house, increasingly, as the kids grew able to talk and develop stronger wills, That one thing that he was constantly doing, this reporter was, was fielding tattles. If any of you are parents, you may have noticed this. That kids love to tattle. And he had this idea. And he went to his son's four-year-old kindergarten class. And he brought to the teacher this idea. And he said, all right, I know that as a four-year-old kindergarten teacher that one of the things you do all day long is you listen to kids tattle on each other. What if I installed a tattle phone in your classroom? One of those old school phones that you actually pick up off of the hook and it has the curly cord going down to the little box. And when the kids would pick it up, it'll say, you have reached the tattle hotline. Tell me what happened. Tell me everything. Beep. And the teacher thought it was a great idea. The reporter got permission from all the parents in the classroom, and he installed the tattle phone in his son's four-year-old kindergarten class, and he recorded what the kids said. It was amazing. You can look up the story. It's still online. And you can hear these cute little voices who would line up and wait for 15 minutes for their turn to get to the tattle phone. It was all anybody wanted to do. They would get up, they would hear that message, and they would tell the whole story. Any little minor injustice that they experienced in the classroom from another student, they would go to the tattle phone. They loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. Because we as human beings love to complain. This is something that we're born with, nobody has to teach us about. We come out of the womb waiting to learn how to talk so we can start complaining. And I thought about that little news story and what it shows us about humanity as I sat and stewed on this passage because this is one of many places throughout the Bible that talks about complaining. The Bible actually tells us a lot about complaining. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning as I read this passage to you. Uh, And that's going to be the theme 
of uh, what we see from God's Word today. Uh, the, the title, I don't know if it's printed in your bulletin there, the title of this sermon is How to Complain. So get ready for that. And again, I'll warn you, some of you are about to zone out because I'm going to read you a lot of Hebrew poetry. I'm going to read it in English. Okay, you're welcome. But it's long, and if you zone out, it's okay. I'm going to do my best to explain it in just a few minutes. Well, I'm going to read the whole thing because what, what we have before us is a word from God. It's God's word. And he's given it to us to hear, to believe, because he loves us and he wants us to know him. So listen up. Psalm 69. To the choir master, according to the lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than my, the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O oh Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O oh God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O oh God, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant. For I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap 
Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him who you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him. The seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And the people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks. Uh, We give you thanks that you call us to worship you. We give you thanks that you give us your word. And Lord, we ask for your help with it now. What stands before us are ancient words. Poetic words. That through years and millennia and translation uh, can be hard for us to grapple with and to understand. And I pray for your help by your spirit that, Lord, these would not just be ancient words that feel dead. That, Lord, you would tune our hearts to see and to understand that these words are words of life. And that they point us to good news That you're a God who sees us, who hears us, and who saves us. Lord, may we know it's true this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this psalm before us, Psalm 69. It's a heavy psalm, and I want us to understand three things about it. We could say so much about it. I have spent years studying this thing now, and I would encourage you to spend time with it today and plumb its depths, but I just want to give you three things. The first thing I want us to see in it is that it is a psalm about real pain. The second thing I want us to see is that it's a psalm about real wrestling And the third thing I want us to see is that it's a psalm about a real savior. All right, real pain, real wrestling, and a real savior. And I want us to start with the hardest stuff, the painful stuff. That's how the psalm starts, and so that's where we're going to start. I heard someone say recently, who was talking about doing college ministry, that college students are never going to understand the Bible. They're never going to get the Bible 
until they realize how deeply the Bible gets them. Students are never going to understand the Bible until they understand, until they realize how much the Bible understands them. I've been chewing on that for the past six months or so. I think it's really true. That's been my experience as I've worked with students at Furman University. And I think that's true for regardless of age. That it's hard for us to get the Bible until we until we realize the Bible really gets us. And this passage shows us that the Bible gets us. We've recently, my wife and I, been watching the Amazon documentary, Shiny Happy People. I feel a little ashamed to admit that. It's about the Duggar family. And the sect of Christianity that they're connected to. And one of the features of that whole world that those people live in is that they always act like everything is fine. They're taught from childhood to always be smiling. God is good, so we're going to act like we're good. But what we see in this psalm is that the Bible does not teach us to always be smiling and act like everything is okay, because it's not. This is a psalm about real pain. Life is hard. And this, this passage of the Bible helps us to deal with that. I want us to see some, some of the features of it. The pain that, that is described in this psalm is multifaceted, all right? It talks about emotional pain. That's the thing that jumps off the page to me when I open up this psalm and start to read it. it. In a lot of ways, the first two verses of the psalm sound like they're describing a panic attack. I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack. But it, it might feel something like this. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. The image that this psalmist is giving us is that he feels so overwhelmed by what's going on in his life that he feels like he's starting to drown. And he needs a breath of air, a gasp of air, and he's trying to lift himself up out of the water that's rising so that he can take a breath. But when he pushes his feet down... All that he finds underneath his feet is mud. And so when he tries to push off the bottom and up to the surface, it actually sinks him further down like quicksand. Have you ever felt that way? Like you needed a breath, but you can't get it. Because you're so overwhelmed. The pain that the psalmist feels is not only emotional, it's spiritual pain too. Look at verse 3. He wrote, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. He's saying, I've been calling out for God to save me for so long that my throat, my voice is going hoarse. 
My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. I've been looking for God to show up. I've been searching the horizon to see when God is going to send me help. And I don't see anything. So I've been waiting so long that my vision is getting blurry. And God is nowhere to be found. That is spiritual pain. Have you ever asked that question? Where are you, God? How long must I suffer? Why will you not deliver me? It's a spiritually painful reality that this psalmist brings out. It it goes on, and I want to just highlight one more aspect of the pain that this man is wrestling with, and that's relational pain. I think this is really important because it's something that we deal with all the time. Look at, it's really sprinkled throughout the psalm, but look at verse 20. He said, my reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. When this man was entering into this space where he felt like he was drowning, where he needed help, he couldn't get a breath, God wasn't showing up for him. He tried to find someone else in his community who would come and be with him, but no one was there. He was lonely. In another place, he says that my mother's sons have rejected me. Those closest to him have turned their backs away from him. He's all alone. Now, you may be in a place this morning where you come into worship and you're on the summer high. Maybe next week you're going on vacation, things are looking good. You got the beach and good stuff, good times in front of you. Maybe you're in a sweet season with the Lord, with your family. And if that's you, that's awesome. But some of you might not be in that place. You might feel deeply what this psalmist is describing. Life hurts. And if it doesn't hurt now, you know good and well that it's going to hurt. So many things that we face are inconsolably painful. We don't know what to do. There's nothing we can do. So what do we do when there's nothing to do? The Bible gives us an answer that I think is surprising. What the Bible teaches us in this psalm and throughout the whole span of Scripture is when we get overwhelmed, when we get to that place where we don't know where to look, we don't know where to go, we feel the absence of God more than we feel His presence. What does the Bible tell us to do? It tells us to complain. You might have grown up in a tradition uh, somewhat like the one that was portrayed in that documentary, Shiny Happy People, where it feels like the 11th commandment 
is don't complain. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for those, the good of those who believe. So no matter what's going on in my life, I'm going to grin and bear it. I'm, I'm going to say, you know, I, I'm, God is good. I'm just going to smile and be happy and think about the good things. Again, that is not what the Bible teaches us to do. The Bible tells us over and over again that the right response to overwhelming suffering and pain is to complain. But now it does teach us how to do it, a right way and a wrong way. How do we complain? There's a fascinating passage in the Old Testament. Uh, you, you don't have to flip there, but maybe if you're, if you're interested in this stuff, write it down. Numbers chapter 11. Fascinating place. It's a chapter in the Old Testament that's about complaining. I told you, it's all over the Bible. This whole chapter is about complaining. It's fascinating because there are two complainers in the passage. One of them is the people of Israel. They get frustrated. They find out what all of us have found out if we've walked with God for very long, which is that walking with God is hard. Even after you get saved, when you walk with God, life is hard and it often hurts. And they're feeling that pain. It says they're, they're feeling their misfortunes and they begin to complain about it. And when God hears their complaining, he responds with anger. It says that he sends a consuming fire into the camp. And burn some people up. It's intense. Okay. So then we have another complainer. Same chapter. Different complainer. Moses. Moses, the leader of the people of Israel. Sees what's going on. He hears these complaining people. He sees that the Lord is mad at the people. And he starts complaining to God. That he has to try to lead these rebellious people. And he just whines and complains. And God does not get angry. God responds with compassion. God responds with kindness. God meets him in his need and helps him. Why? What the heck? Should we complain or should we not? Does God bless complaining or curse it? Well, there's a difference. The people of Israel, it says very clearly in Numbers chapter 11, you can look it up. They complained in the hearing of the Lord. Moses complained to the Lord. The Bible tells us that when we complain in our own hearts or to one another and we gripe and we moan, that that's actually sinful. But when we feel those things and we take those feelings to God, that he blesses that. He receives it. He delights to hear and feel, feel our complaints and respond to them with love. 
The Bible teaches us over and over again that when we get overwhelmed, that the right response is to complain to him. This is explicit in the passage in verse 13. The psalmist writes this, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. When this man feels the water coming up to his neck, he's in the midst of his panic attack. He can't see God or feel him. He still goes to God with his pain. This is real wrestling. This is the invitation that the Bible gives to us. We have to learn how to do this. I think as a church we're terrible at doing this. We want our relationship with God to be full of praise and joy, and it should be. And we avoid dealing with the hard stuff with God. But can you imagine being in a relationship with a person, say a marriage relationship, can you imagine a marriage relationship where a husband and a wife only ever talk about nice things with each other? And they never deal with the hard stuff. They never share their fears, their doubts, their anger with each other. How deep is that relationship going to be? Not very. And so when the Bible teaches us how to deal with this hard life that we're living, it teaches us to bring that stuff to God because that is the only way we're going to be intimate with Him. There is no other way. It could be that if you are struggling to feel connected to God, if your relationship with Him feels distant, if He feels far off, it could be that you are withholding your confusion, your questions, your frustrations, your fears from Him. The exhortation that this psalm gives us and 49 other ones, by the way. One third of the psalms that we have are psalms of complaint. The exhortation that it gives us is to wrestle with God, complain to Him, and receive His mercy. I did a small group with some guys this past semester at Furman where... Uh, we did, we did a bunch of different kind of spiritual disciplines and, and we worked to, to learn how to connect with God in different ways, through prayer, through silent meditation. And one of the things that we did in the semester was we, we learned how to complain to God. We had a, a section on lamenting. That's the kind of theological term for complaining to God. It's lamenting. And we read this psalm and some other psalms that, uh, that teach us how to lament and I had the guys in my group, and I did it myself, write out a lament. And most of the guys got nothing out of it. <laughs> because I realized in the process that these 18 and 19-year-olds haven't realized how hard life is 
yet. So it was a struggle for most of them to do this exercise, but I still think it was worth doing, and that was confirmed for me this summer when I got a phone call from one of those guys in my group. And he told me that he had gone off to work at a job in another state for the summer. And he showed up, and it seemed like everybody else had known each other for years. And he was the one guy who was coming from South Carolina into this already established community, not knowing anyone, and he felt completely alone. He tried to make friends, he tried to be friendly, but it was going nowhere. And he was regretting his decision to go and work this job and thinking about leaving. But he called me to tell me that after a week or two of just hating his life, he remembered that he should take that to God. And so he sat down with his journal and he wrote out what he was feeling on a piece of paper. And he told me that that changed his entire summer. He said, after I did that, I felt like God was with me. He said, after I did that, I started writing out prayers every day. And I feel more connected to God than I have in a long time. And I made friends. It is not our instinct to take our pain, our fears, our distress to God. But if we are going to be intimate with Him, we have to learn how to do it. It will help you connect with Him. I would encourage you. There are great resources online. If you Google how to write a lament, I've done it. Helpful stuff there. If you've got stuff stirring in you that you need to get out, talk to an elder. When Jonathan gets back in town, set up coffee with him. This is something worth pursuing. We've got to learn how to wrestle with God. And there's one more thing I want us to see in this passage. And that's that this passage is not only a tutorial. It is a tutorial. A how to complain. It is. But just like all the other parts of Scripture, it doesn't stop there. Because along with showing us real pain and identifying with us in that, and along with teaching us how to wrestle with that pain in the presence of God and bring that to Him, it also points us to a person. It takes us straight to Jesus If you read through the New Testament, the New Testament quotes Psalm 69 seven times in reference to Jesus' life. Seven times the New Testament tells us that Psalm 69, that was written probably by King David about stuff that happened a thousand years before Jesus' birth, that it found its fulfillment when Jesus came into the world and lived this life as the man of sorrows who was afflicted with grief. Jesus was the one who ultimately received the reproaches of God. 
Jesus was the one who was ultimately betrayed by his mother's sons. Jesus was the one who was ultimately abandoned when he needed help the most. Jesus was the one who cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he heard no answer. This psalm points us directly to Jesus. An Old Testament scholar named Derek Kidder said when he was commenting on Psalm 69, that when you read the psalm, It has so many connections to Jesus' experience of suffering and to his cross that you can easily slip into thinking that you are actually reading about the cross when you read of the suffering of the psalmist. Except for one key difference. There's one key difference between the psalm and Jesus' experience. See, when the psalmist feels overwhelmed and he's surrounded by enemies and he's being persecuted and betrayed. He cries out for justice. He says in verses 20 through 28 things like, let their own table before them become a snare. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. The psalmist wants justice. He calls for judgment upon those who hate and persecute him. You remember that tattle phone? There's a fascinating thing at the end of that story where uh, the, the reporter who set up the tattle phone and did the story, he, he noted that the tattle phone was set up for about a month and that when he set it up, the line was just wrapped around the room with, student, with little kids waiting to get to the tattle phone so they could tell on their classmates. But he said the longer the phone was there, the fewer and fewer students went to use it. And he said, now I think that some of that was novelty, but he said, I think that I figured out why they lost interest when I talked to my son. And he said, when I was talking to my son about using the tattle phone, a little four-year-old kid, he said, son, did you, did you use the tattle phone? And the little kid said, yeah, I did. And he said, did you like it? And the little kid said, well, yeah, I liked it. It felt good to use the tattle phone, but but then nothing happened. And the reporter reflecting on this said, I think that's a key to to the whole tattle phone, that we like to vent our frustrations, but what we really want is justice. What those little kids really wanted was for their classmates who had hurt them to get in trouble. And that is a natural response. Justice is from God and it's good. And when David called down for justice to fall on his enemies, it was not wrong of him to do that. But when Jesus was on the cross and he was surrounded by his enemies and he was mocked, and spit on, and rejected, and hated, and receiving the wrath of man. 
What did he say? In Luke 23, he called down from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus had every right to call for justice to be done to his enemies. But rather than that, he called for mercy. And the same is true for you. You have sinned against God. And rather than justice, what you will receive if you believe into Christ is you will receive mercy, forgiveness, and welcome. In her book, Bird by Bird, Anne Lamont tells a story of a little boy who's eight years old. And his little sister was diagnosed with leukemia. Horrible reality for the, his family to deal with. Everyone was sad. Everyone was confused. And in the beginning stages of her testing, there, there were, it was thought that there was no treatment and that she was going to die. But after one particular doc, doctor's visit, the doctor came bursting into the room where the family was re- waiting and said, Great news. There's a treatment we've discovered. We can save her life. What we need, all we need, is to get someone with a perfect match for her blood. And we can take it and give it to her and and, and it will cure her. And the family was overjoyed. They all immediately went and submitted themselves to testing. And a little eight-year-old boy came back as a perfect match. They could create a life-saving cure out of his blood. The family was jumping up and down, screaming, clapping hands, you're a match, you're a match. And they said, when can we do the procedure? The doctor said, we can do it tomorrow. And they said, great, this is great. Son, are you ready? Can you, will you, are you up for it? You ready to save your sister's life? And he said, can I sleep on it? And they said, uh, sure. And so when they got home, he ate dinner and very somberly, and then he went off to bed. The next morning, the family woke up. He came down the stairs, sat down to the breakfast table, and said, Mom and Dad, I have decided. I will be the donor. And they said, great. I'm glad that you are willing to do it. Let's eat some breakfast and get to the hospital. And they finished breakfast. They get to the hospital. They get everybody set up. The nurses cleaned his little arm, inserted the needle. And when the doctor came by to check on the process, he noticed that that little boy just was clenched up, eyes closed, white as a ghost. And the doctor said, son, are you okay? And the little boy with his eyes still closed said, how soon until I start to die? family realized that he wanted to sleep on it because he was doing the math. Was his life worth giving up so that his sister could live? On the night before he was killed, Jesus went out into a garden alone 
to pray. And he was doing the math. Knowing that he would have to go literally through hell. For you to get to enter into the presence of God's eternal delight. Into his glory forever. And when he asked that question, is it worth it? Am I willing to be the sacrifice? The answer that he came up with was yes. For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising its shame. So that you could be saved. Would you believe that it's true? Would you see that his suffering, he endured for you to set you free? Let's pray. Lord, we give you great thanks for this good news. We give you thanks that you're a God who seeks and saves lost people like us, that you are a God who has compassion on sufferers like us. Lord, often we can't see you, we can't hear you, we feel like you're absent. Lord, give us faith to see and to know and to believe that you not only are present, that you came into this world to suffer on our behalf, an unimaginable suffering, so that we could live, so that we could be set free, so that our suffering will eventually come to an end. We pray that you would help us to see it and believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.